that we sang from the song. He says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. Did you hear that? Do you believe that? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me from life's first cry to final breath and everything in between. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man, no scheme of your own can ever pluck us from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ we stand. That's our faith. That's our confidence. That's our hope. And if you don't know that hope, I would encourage you to ask somebody here at some point um, after the service is over about what the reason is for the hope that we have that we will stand in Christ. Well, Good morning. Welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here. Uh, We are grateful that you would come and join together with us. Uh, Our other pastor, he is away right now on sabbatical. He's going to be coming back. I think his his first Sunday back is August 22nd, so about six more weeks, I think, five more weeks until he returns. And then um, we'll get to rejoice that they're having time off. Um, In the meanwhile, we are enjoying celebrating as a church this extended season that we get to have, that, that we, are, we are able to put behind some of the restrictions of the past and we rejoice in all the freedoms that God has given us. And so um, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for joining. Thanks for worshiping. We count as a privilege that we get to worship together freely. Amen? Well, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're continuing in our series in the book of Corinthians or the letter to the Corinthians. This is a personal letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the church that's in Corinth. And he's writing to them, and he's writing to them as a friend, as a fellow family member, and you hear that coming through. And so we'll be looking at verses 10 to 17. He's making an appeal to them. He's already set them up ahead of time, what their grounds for confidence is in, and then now he makes some appeals to them because they have some areas they need to correct. So this is Paul's appeal, and this is the Holy Spirit's appeal to all of us. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you are united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you My brothers, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul baptized for you? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that No one will say you are baptized in my name. I I did also baptize the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray and ask God for his help to understand this. Father, we need you in every way. God, so often 
when we come on Sunday mornings. We're, we're distracted by a thousand things. Lord, we, we pray that you would enable us to, to focus on your word. These are your life-giving words. These are your freeing words. These are your revitalizing, refreshing words that you, tend, that you intend for us to hear today. Enable us by your spirit to hear these words, to apply these words to our hearts and minds. Enable me to preach by your spirit. We look to you, depending upon you, God, to to mediate your word to us this morning. And we know that you are faithful to do that. So we come humbly before your throne of grace, asking for mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a confession for you. Might be a little weird. Maybe it's a it's a weird habit or tick that I have. But but um, when I was younger, and I don't do it as much anymore because I don't have time for it. But when I was younger, I would I would take a pack of M and M's and I would segregate them. I would separate them by colors, and then I would separate them by which ones were broken and then which ones were in pieces. Anybody here ever do something like that? You separate anybody here weird like me? You ever separate your M and M's or your Skittles or maybe your Nerds or whatever? Um, I, I still do separate other things, though. I don't have time to, to open up a whole pack of them and then pour them out and separate them all, you know. And then I, I would eat them by saying, okay, let me eat the, the broken ones first that are un, uh, unmentionable. I, I'll eat those first. And then, and then I'll, I'll eat the chipped ones. And then, then I'll, I'll separate them into colors and I'll eat the ones with the most color first until they all get down to similar colors. Maybe this is a little like OCD or something. I don't know. But I think it's because there's this innate desire in most of us to want to separate things to want to segregate things, to want to classify things. You know, God, God actually, one of the first things he called Adam to do was to, to name the animals, to classify them. So part of that's a God-given thing. Part of it might be weird, okay? I get that. But we have a tendency in us that we want to separate things. We want to um, divide things into likes or not likes. I even do this with, and I still do this when we sit and watch um, TV. I'll, I'll get to Costco's mixed fancy nuts and I'll, I'll grab a handful, but I'll eat all the, all the um, almonds out of it first because I don't like them as much. And then I'll eat the other things that I like. And then, and then I'll, I'll save like the, the thing that I like for last. I'm not going to tell you which one I like because I'm, often I'll give that to my wife. She likes, she likes something that I like, but, um, but she likes it better. So, um, but I, we, we, we tend to segregate things. We tend to separate things because there's this natural tendency within us to do that. And we, we kind of do that by default, right? Um, you associate yourself with an identity. And, and that's not necessarily bad, but it depends on who your identity is in. And it depends on, on where you find your identity. Now, this isn't the first time we talked about this as a church, because just a few weeks ago, we actually closed out the book of John by refocusing on some of the key themes of the book of John, and we focused on the prayer of Jesus. And one of his major prayers was that we might be unified in him. So you might be thinking, well, why are we like harping on this all over again? Why, why are we going back to the same message? Well, well, one reason is because this is just the next message in the book of Corinthians, but the other one is because it's important because it's a gospel issue. You see, our unity, it affects our ability to communicate the gospel. Our, our unity and who we have our identity in, it speaks of how the gospel has affected us or not. Our unity reveals, or our lack of unity reveals, where our identity is found. And so we're going to look at that today. We have, a, we have a tendency to tear apart based on our unity. And that's what the Apostle Paul, he, he's correcting in the church in Corinth. Jesus prayed that his church would be united. And just a few short years later, Paul is probably writing this around 53 AD or so. And so within 20 years, the church that, that has started all over the world is becoming fractured. And it's actually a lot quicker than that because for the Apostle Paul, this is probably about three years or so in. 
He founded the church in Corinth, and then three years later, they're already torn apart by various factions and divisions. It happens quickly. I mean, a, a good start can quickly fracture if the foundation's wrong. And that should give us pause as a church, right? Because we, 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 we as a church, we, our identity is we want, we want to be people who are focused on our identity in Christ, Right? Our mission is to, is to be disciples. That's our identity. It's to be disciples. That's who we say we are. We're, we're disciples of Jesus Christ. And then our, our mission is not just to be disciples, but to, to grow as disciples. And so that means growing in our identity in Christ. And then, to, and then to proclaim that, to make disciples. But so often, because of our tendency to separate that's inherent to us as humans, disunity can creep in. Division can creep in, and that's what's happening in the church in Corinth. He says, look down at verse 11. We're going to start there because it actually says four. He gives an appeal, and then he gives the reason why he's making the appeal. So we're going to start with the reason for it. He says, four, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's divisions among you. That word's for divisions. It's a tearing apart. There's, there's, you're tearing yourselves apart like a, you rip a fabric apart. There's divisions among you. You're supposed to be united as a fabric. You're supposed to be united as a whole. And yet, he says, there's divisions among you. There's quarreling among you. He says, what I mean is this, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or, or I follow Christ. And so what are they doing here? They're finding their identity in who their figurehead is, who their leader is. And, and, and before you think that you don't do that, let me ask you when, you, when you first describe yourself to someone, how do you describe yourself? What do you describe yourself by? When somebody says, tell me a little bit about yourself, is the first thing that you say is, you know, my identity is found in Jesus Christ. I mean, probably not. I mean, I hope so. They were looking, looking to their favorite leader to define them. The world around them is locked into this idea of, of patriarchy, this, this idea of patronage. patronage. And so they, they look to their patron to get them what they want, to give them power, to give them authority, to give them influence, to give them impact on the world around them, to give them worth. Maybe today a modern equivalent might be something like saying, I'm of Harvard, right? Somebody says, you know, I went to Harvard. There probably is some connotations with that, that they're expecting a a certain degree of respect. Or maybe for you, it's I went to Clemson. Or maybe it's not that, and I went to USC. Or maybe it's, you know, I went to some other place. and, And so, you know, I went to Furman or Yale or Princeton or whatever school you want to talk about. Or maybe you studied under this famous person or I have a certain degree. What are you doing when you're doing that? You're associating yourself with an identity or a group or a figurehead because you believe that gives you worth or value. You believe that that actually enhances your identity. Right? Have you ever done that? Anybody here ever done that before? You know, maybe you're identified by your title or that you work at a well-known company or a well-respected company or that maybe you identify with a brand. You know, it's, it's only BMW for me. It's only Lululemon for me. Uh, or Starbucks, or Lowe's, or Whole Foods, or whatever, or Republican, or Democrat, or Libertarian, or maybe you have the alternate that you're like, I'm not of any identity. That's my identity. I'm superior because that's me. I'm not of any identity. I'm better than because that's because I'm not like all those other people. Or, or maybe you find your identity in the name of uh, your diet. You know, vegetarian, meat eater, keto, whatever. Maybe you find your identity in the name of how you school your kids if you're a parent. Public school, homeschool, unschool, classical school. 
and you find that you're superior there. What, what name do you associate yourself with? What name are you tempted to associate yourself with? See, this is a, this is a natural human tendency to associate ourselves with, with different names. There's a thousand different names we can associate ourselves with, and they can function like subtle gods to get us a sense of worth, of identity, of value, of significance, of importance, of honor, or at least we think they will. Some align themselves maybe with Apollos because he was a very gifted orator. He was a great speaker. We know that from Acts because Acts tells us that he, he was gifted in speaking. Now, he didn't know much to begin with, and so he had to have some people in the church disciple him. But he was a very gifted orator, so maybe some align themselves around that. Paul is not correcting the fact that, that Apollos is teaching something wrong or Peter taught something wrong or Jesus taught something different. No, what he's saying is uh, he's correcting the fact that they're all divided based on personalities or based on different names. He's correcting the division. He's not correcting the fact that they separated based on theology. You know, maybe some aligned with Peter because they thought that he's closer to the true Christian faith. He's one of the 12. Or maybe some liked him better because he keeps the rules better. He seems to be, he seems to be better at being close to the true faith, to Judaism. Or Maybe people aligned with Paul because he was lowly and he wasn't much to look at and so poor people thought, oh, we can identify with him. For whatever reason, they saw themselves as superior. Even the people who said they claimed Christ, Paul here is not saying it's wrong to claim your identity in Christ. What he's saying is it's wrong to think you're superior because you alone are the ones who have Christ. We really have Christ, and none of those other Christians who act that way or believe that way, none of them really have Christ. And so what he's saying is, you're separating yourselves. You're even using this identity of, well, well, we really have Christ. We really have the corner of the mark of the truth. They saw themselves as superior. They had the right doctrine. You ever thought that way? You ever thought, well, we, we, have, we have the only right doctrine. No one else really is a believer truly of Christ. Because we really believe a certain way, we really believe a specific way. Everybody else is a little bit inferior. Paul is against the church dividing into cliques in various parties. Now, he doesn't get into specifics, and that's on purpose because it's meant to apply to us. Because, you know, we're, we're prone to divide, to separate out into different cliques, to different parties. We're even tempted to separate out based on our, our nationalities. But that's one of the reasons why, if you notice, we don't have like the American flag or the Christian, the Christian flag up here. We, we are grateful to live in a free nation. And so we celebrate that. And we're going to light some fireworks off. Somebody did win last night and light some fireworks off or watched fireworks get lit. And that's great because we celebrate that God has given us freedom so that the gospel can be proclaimed. But we are not, first and foremost, Americans. We are first and foremost Christians, we are not first and foremost any tongue or nation. And by the way, it'd be pretty strange if you go over to communist China and they separate, celebrate communist China Day, you would find it a little awkward as a believer, right? Because you couldn't endorse that. And Paul here is saying, you don't want your identity to be tied to any given name. We should always work to live in a way that reflects and shines forth and, and carries out the gospel. Now, now, we're grateful, by the way. Don't, don't think I'm anti-American or something. You know, I, I used to work for the government. So, um, but we do pray for our nation. We, we hope for the good of our nation. We, we work to carry out good laws. We, we do things so that the gospel can be proclaimed freely and so the church can grow. But that's our goal, not the other. 
Even denominations can be this thinly veiled search for identity. I have a relative who, be careful in case they listen to this message. So I have a relative who, um, he, he would only go to a certain denomination because they think that that denomination is uniquely has the corner of the market. That's the only place they're comfortable. And, and even when there's not a good denominational church nearby, they're still going to a, a, a bad church, a church that doesn't proclaim the gospel, that still carries that denominational name. Why? Because we have a tendency to do that. Where some of us can say, well, we're not denominational. That's our identity. We're better because of that. But what, what happens? You ever, you ever do this? When you enter a crowded room, do you look for people who are like you? Do you look for people who align the same way you do? At the root of it all is pride because you know what? We want to seek our own merit. We want to seek value and worth in a name, and an identity. And we seek it through our group and at the root it's pride. Sometimes we, we feel like we know better because of a certain identity we have. We are better. We are superior. We're deserving of greater honor. That's what was happening in the church in Corinth. We're to be esteemed. It's a question of glory, though, and we are very good at being glory thieves. That was the original thing that that Adam was tempted by. He was tempted to take glory to himself. He was tempted to want to have honor for himself, to make a name for himself, to have the knowledge that God had. And that's the same temptation that we see whenever we have division in the church. It's often a question of glory, a question of honor. So Paul makes an appeal. He says that there be no divisions. That's pretty extreme, Paul. No divisions? Because we're all pretty different. No divisions? We all have some pretty strong opinions. And in this church, we have strong opinions, and that's good. We're grateful. We don't want to be automatons. But he says in the midst of that, in the midst of all your strong opinions, in the midst of all the differences, which, by the way, later he's going to commend to them their differences. So he's not talking about let there be no differences among you, because later on he says all of you have all kinds of different gifts. Some of you are a hand, and some of you are an unmentionable part. And that's good. And by the way, we give more honor to the unmentionable parts. And so he's not saying there's no differences. He's saying in the midst of those extreme differences, let there be no divisions, no divisions among you. Because we have a tendency to separate based on our identity, but what does he call us to? He says, I make an appeal to you that you be united, that you all agree. Why? Because we're called to be restored to unity. That's the call. We're called to be restored to unity. There are all kinds of quarrels and strikes. It was causing problems. It was affecting the gospel witness. The very word, he says, you know, it's kind of being rent apart, torn apart, like you would rip a net apart. It's no good. If a, if a net is ripped apart, it's not going to catch any fish. The same way, when, when, when the net of our gospel unity is ripped apart, we're not going to catch any fish. And so he says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What name? Oh, our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he say it like that? He says, because he doesn't want us to associate or affiliate with any other name primarily. We want to be associated and affiliated with primarily the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And every part of that is important. Our Lord. Now, Paul is appealing to them based on the authority of Jesus. He is the Lord. He is our Lord. He's the one who's in control over us. He's our master. He is in charge. And so this appeal has some solemnity to it and some authority. And then it's Jesus because he's also a man. He relates to us. He's like us. He understands what it is to be tempted in every way like we are. And yet he's also the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the chosen one of God who came to rescue us and redeem us. And so Paul appeals to us based on, on who Jesus is by the name of Jesus, by the power of Jesus, by all that his name has to do with. 
that there be no divisions. And then he says, but that you be united. And this word for united, he's, he's using a play on words. He says that you like be mended back together. It's the same word that's used when, when Jesus was walking by the disciples and, and they, were, they were mending their nets. It's the same word here he's here for being united. He says, you've been, you're ripping yourselves apart. You're affecting your gospel witness and your ability to proclaim the gospel and to draw people to him. And so, so now what do I want you to do? I want you to be united, to mend that net. But he's not doing it harshly. How does he appeal to me? He says, I appeal to you, brothers. Now, that, that word is a, is, a, is a plural that can mean brothers and sisters, by the way. It's often used both ways. So he's appealing to both brothers and sisters here. He's appealing to them lovingly as a family. He's appealing to them as, as fellow family members. He's not appealing to them as an apostle right now. He's appealing to them, although he is. He's appealing to them lovingly as a family. And by the way, that should school us on how do we make an appeal when somebody is sinning and somebody needs correction. We don't, we don't skirt around the issue. We don't avoid the issue. But we don't harshly address it either. What does he do here? He lovingly appeals to them as a fellow brother. That's how we make our appeal. That's how Paul made his appeal to the church in Corinth. That's how we're to make an appeal as well, even when somebody is sinning in an egregious way, making it a tender appeal as those who are in equal standing as brothers and sisters, not as somebody who's, who's more important than, better than. But I appeal to you as brothers and sisters, he says. And he appeals not based on his own authority. That should clue us in on how we're to appeal to others too. Not based on our authority. If it's not clear in Scripture, if, this is, if Jesus has not made this clear, then, then let's not push an issue that, unless we're certain. He says he appeals in the name of the authority of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his hope is that Jesus is the Christ. That's the name, the power. And his appeal is that they all agree. That they all agree. Now you think, what is Paul talking about? Is he talking about everybody has to think exactly the same? Because he says, I want you to all agree. There be no divisions that you be united in the same mind, the same judgment. So Paul, are you saying we have to all think the same thing? We have to all agree on absolutely everything? Well, no, he's not saying that. But what he's saying is I want there to be the basis for your agreement. I want you to all agree on who you are in Jesus. All agree that you are primarily putting Jesus first, that you are following Jesus. I want you to be of the same mind, the same will. I want you all to have that same will together, that your will is in submission to his will. Your identity is in submission to his identity. And I want you to evaluate your entire life and everything you believe. I want you to judge based on that. Being of that same mind, that same judgment, being united in that. Instead of being torn apart, be mended or restored to one piece. Have the mind about what's most, same mind about what's most important. Thinking the same about the gospel. Evaluating our lives based on Jesus Christ. Are we in submission to him in every area of life? Is he our Lord? Is he our Christ? Is he who we're looking to? Are we united that way? Are we thinking that way? Are we evaluating ourselves and others that way? That's what he says he wants us to do in the church. Well, how do we do that? He tells us how. He tells us how we can have no division to all agree, all be united. How? Well, he says we're reunited by focusing on our identity in Christ. That's how we're reunited, by focusing on our identity in Christ. The other day we were walking around Conesty. Noah and I had some time off and we were walking around and we got to a place where they have the, these birds that are way up on on trees in the middle of a marsh and you really can't see them very well unless you have a pair of binoculars. And so we got the binoculars out, we're looking 
Um, but you know what? It's hard to find your place through binoculars. And so you kind of have to put the binoculars down and get perspective first. And then, and then you can focus in and see what you're trying to look at. Can you imagine, though, and what we were trying to do a couple times, we were trying to take a picture through the binoculars lens, and it was a little hard, and it kind of worked. But um, we were trying to find the, the birds with looking through the binoculars, and we are like, okay, this is not working. Okay, there they are. Okay, I found them. Now I'm going to focus in on them. But can you imagine if we took the binoculars and you walked around trying to find your way, walking down a path, using binoculars? You couldn't do it. You'd bump into stuff. You wouldn't see what was right in front of you. You wouldn't see where to go. You would end up focusing on things, and that, that, that focus on things would actually take you away from how you should go and where you should go. Sometimes we focus on different identities, and, and they get us the lost and make us stumble. We can't see where we need to go in Christ, where he's calling us to go, how, how he's calling us to live in unity. There was a song back in, I think, 1988. It was called Cult of Personality. It was a, it was a, it was a band called Living Color. Uh, I doubt anybody here has ever heard it, but it, it, was, it, it talks about, it says, look in my eyes, what do you see? The cult of personality. I know your anger, I know your dreams, I've been everything you want to be. I'm the cult of personality, either like Mussolini or Kennedy, I'm the cult of personality. The cult of personality, neon lights, Nobel Prize, when a mirror speaks, the reflection lies. There is a temptation for all of us to follow different cults of personalities, and when we focus on that, when we focus on those identities, it takes us astray from seeing where we go in Christ, seeing where it's called us to go. But you know what? Um, as, as unbelievers, you are not free to find your identity in Christ. You're actually in bondage. You're enslaved to a different identity. You're enslaved to being the old man. And the old man is associated with all those ways of identifying. But here's the good news. In Jesus Christ, he sets you free so that you are no longer bound to that cult of personality. You're free now to identify in Christ. And so Paul asks some questions here. And look at verse 13. He asks some questions that are ways of combating this, ways of finding our identity in Jesus, questions we need to ask ourselves when we're finding ourselves divided. And so he says, is Christ divided? And clearly the answer is no. He's a whole man. He's a whole person. He's united. He's one. And so the implication is, if he's not divided, then how can we be? He's one, and so is his church. His body should be one. If you find that you're divided from others here in this church, ask yourselves, why? What is it that's dividing you? Is it Christ that's divided? Are you divided over him, or are you divided over secondary things? And that word for divided also can have the, that, that sense of being portioned out. So what he might be saying is, you know, hey, is Christ divided so that Christ is just a piece over here and he's, he's only given to these people over here, but he's not given to people who follow Apollos or Paul or Cephas. Well, well, of course not. They're all believers. He's not apportioned out like that. You're not the only ones with exclusive rights to Christ. And then he asks another question. He says, was Paul crucified for you? What is he asking? Are you looking to something else to atone for you? Are you looking to someone else to atone? Are you looking to self-atonement? Are you looking to be atoned by some other by your identity? By who you follow? And it's not Jesus? So he says, was Paul crucified for you? Of course he wasn't. 
no one else but Christ crucified for their sins. They shouldn't be idolizing or lifting up any mere human. That's what he's getting at. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? You know, were you saying, you know, when, when, when they put you down in the waters of baptism, and by the way, in case you're new here, there's a, there's a baptismal back here. And when we baptize people, we baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't baptize people in the name of Aaron Campbell, Matt Rawlings. And if we did, you should stone us. Maybe not literally, but you should at least leave. He says, will you baptize in the name of Paul? That's sacrilege. That should be heinous. It should create this revulsion. If I said, you know, we baptize you in the name of Matt, that should make you upset. And yet they were doing that. They were saying that, you know, well, you know, so-and-so taught me. Or, you know, I, I learned that from John Piper when I had lunch with him. Or J.I. Packer taught me that. Or, you know, when I... I was first baptized, I was in D.A. Carson's church in Vancouver, and he, he baptized me. As if that somehow gives merit. As if who you're taught by gives merit when it's who you're taught about that gives you merit. He says then, I love that he's, his humanity is revealed in verses 14 to 16. It's, this is this wonderful, beautiful picture. He's a real man. He's a real person. He says, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you guys. I am so glad I didn't baptize any of you except for Gaius and Crispus, you know, the leader of the synagogue and, and the person I live with, so that none of you can say you're baptized in my name so that you can't get that credit. And then he thinks about it. He's like, well, I, I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Okay, beyond that, I, I don't know. I don't know whether I baptized anybody else. But that's not his point. His point is he's saying, I didn't baptize very many of you, so I'm really glad that not many of you can say that you're baptized by me so you can't put your identity in me because your identity never belongs in me. It belongs in Christ. And he says, for, look at verse 17, Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. We weren't baptized in the name of some mere person. It doesn't matter who dunks us under the water in some sense. Who dunks us under the waters of baptism doesn't save us or transform us or give us life. When we're baptized, we're confessing that Jesus Christ has become our Lord, that we have died. What are we saying when we go under the water? We died to sin. We've died to our old nature. We died to our identity. That's what he's talking about. We're died. Baptism, why does he mention that? We're, we're died, we've died to our identity. And then we're raised up. How are we raised up? To, to our, well, to a new identity that's that's all wrapped up in Jesus. It's, it's so closely tied to Jesus that we can't tell the difference. That's where we have, see our identity. It's, that's what we're professing. That's what we want. That's what we're hoping. That's where we're putting our confidence is that our identity is found fully in Christ. So wh- who comes up from the water is us in Christ. Us enrobed in the righteousness of Christ. Us, us clothed in Christ. Us in the very nature of Christ being given to us. And so the only name we claim, the only name we hope in is Christ Jesus the Lord. And Paul says, he sent, he sent, Jesus sent him to, to preach the gospel. And then he tells him how, how he's not been sent. He says, not with words of eloquent wisdom. Does that mean that eloquence is bad? Not necessarily. But let me ask you this. If, if somebody comes to faith because they are so wowed, or they're like, wow, I, I believe what that guy said because he's so persuasive, what happens when that person's not around and that persuasive argument is forgotten? 
Where's their hope? Well, I, I really love it because that person seems to have it all together. And they're eloquent and, and wow, they're impressive. And subtly, hope can be put into the impressive person. He says, not with words of eloquent wisdom. And he's specifically addressing that because the church in Corinth, they were enamored with that. They were enamored with this Greek idea of wisdom and this Greek idea of, of rhetoric and being able to communicate. And so a great communicator is like, whoa, we're going to follow that guy. And he says, That's, there's a danger there because when you do that, the cross is emptied of its power. He says, I didn't come with words of eloquent wisdom. You let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, they were tempted to elevate form over substance. Maybe like some today might elevate style or persuasiveness or impressiveness of a certain preacher above actual content. Instead of looking and saying, I'm, I'm gonna, I mean, that's great. Sometimes that can be real help. But you know what? What I really care about is what's being said. Is this the truth of God's word? Because the truth of God's word is what will change me. It's not, it's not how effective that person's illustration was, not how penetrating and how great their logic is. It's, it's, it's am I seeing the truth of Jesus Christ and is it transforming and penetrating my heart? Is that where my hope's in? You know, some are enamored with those who can just tell a good story or give great illustrations. Or maybe related to worship, you know, man, they've got a sick band. And by the way, if you're older than me, that means good. It's a really good band. It's not that something's wrong with them. Or, you know, they, they, uh, they've got world-class musicians or, or they're, they're mood lighting. Man, I love it. And everything is dark and the lighting's so great and they have that fog or a light show or, or maybe the voice of the lead singer. Oh, man, when that lead singer sings, his voice is so awesome. And what have you lost sight of? You lost sight of the fact, it's great to appreciate gifts, by the way, but, but you lost sight of the fact that it's what we're singing that matters. It's the content. Sincerity of faith, the joy of singing that content. Paul is saying he wasn't sent to preach the gospel in a way that was going to leave them impressed more with his cleverness and skill than they were with what Jesus had done for them. Any form of Christianity, he's saying, that doesn't have a cross at its center, at its heart, is either immature or false. You say that again. Any, any form of Christianity doesn't have a cross at its heart. It's either immature or it's false. He said, there's, there's the power is in the cross of Christ proclaimed. You see, the cross, it upends our ideas of honor and position. It removes what we say in the cross, what we say when we, when we profess faith in Jesus Christ is saying that we died. Every form of our own identity, every form of self-worth has been nailed to the cross. It's like filthy rags. Any honor, so-called honor that I have, I nail that to the cross cross is humbling. Christ had to be humiliated for us. He had to become debased and lowly and despised because of us so that we might be raised, raised to rule and reign with him. He was despised so we might rule and reign with him. Our sins were so heinous that it required the death of the Son of God for us. That's what the cross says. That's the power of the cross. We needed our sins atoned for on the cross. That's what the cross communicates. That's the power of the cross. And here's what the power of the cross communicates. He's atoned for our sins. He's removed our old identity. We've died. Thanks be to God. We don't put our hope in our identity. 
We don't put our hope in our accomplishments. We don't put our hope in our honor. Thanks be to God, we don't have to do those things. We've died to that way of life. The cross also says that the wrath of God is only satisfied, but it is satisfied in the death of Christ in our place. It's the only way we're reconciled to a right relationship with God. No other name, no other cause, no other brand, no other product, no other identification validates us. The cross is what validates us to stand before a holy and righteous God. He was emptied so we might be made full. That's the power of the cross. He was poor so we might have his riches. The cross doesn't mean just focusing on the death of Christ. It, you see, it was effective because Jesus was raised. He was bodily resurrected, and our hope is in his resurrection life because he's been made alive, because the cross of Christ, he died, he's been made alive, he's been resurrected. That is our hope as well. And over the next few passages, Paul's going to be unpacking really the gospel, unpacking the cross. It's something that we could never accomplish Every bit of merit on our own and demerit, thanks be to God, has been nailed to the cross. If you want to try to have merit based on your identity, good luck. Because your identity is going to falter. You're going to fail. And so you'll have across you failure stamped across your forehead. Your identity is in Christ. You have righteous stamped on you. The cross is God's power to make us dead to sin and alive to Christ. There's one Christ. He's united. There's one Christ. He was crucified for us. We are baptized in the name of Christ. The, there's power in the cross of Christ to give us a new identity. That's what we celebrate. It's what we sang about this morning. Our sins have been atoned for. We don't have to hide behind the paltry fig leaves of our own identity anymore trying to cover up with some other identity that's nonsense we don't have to do that we can come before the throne of grace naked and unashamed why because we've been clothed in his righteousness it washes away all our sins with the blood of jesus the cross closes with the righteousness of christ we died to the self we've been reconciled to god amen so we're, as we're about to sing, Philip, you, you and the band will go ahead and come up. We're going to sing of the power of the cross. And the reason why is because the cross of Christ powerfully gives us a new identity. Yes, that's the thing I want you to walk away with. That the cross of Christ powerfully gives us a new identity. That's our hope. Amen. Let's stand and sing.